This is a 720 to go podcast from Chicago's WGN Radio 720. This podcast is sponsored by ADM. As one of the world's largest agricultural processors, ADM is uniquely positioned to serve the world's growing needs for abundant food and renewable energy. ADM. When it comes to the business of America's farmland, you need the information from the people who know it best. That's why we bring you AgriCast with Orion Samuelson and Max Armstrong. Well, good morning again. Ten minutes after five o'clock here on the Saturday morning show. Orion Samuelson back with you for our weekly get-together to discuss what to me is the most basic important industry on the planet, and that's producing food to feed people. And America's farmers continue to do it better than anybody else on the planet. So good to have you with us here on this Saturday morning. As I mentioned to Matt earlier, we're going to check in with uh, the co-founder of Big Iron Auctions, because I've been seeing that name quite a bit, and I'm sure you have too if you're involved on the farm in agriculture. And uh, they have done some interesting different things in auctioning property, auctioning equipment, and auctioning products that agriculture needs. So we're going to get to the man who co-founded the company, and we will do that uh, when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. Joining me on the phone this morning, Mark Stock. You know him as Big Iron Auction. It's a, a company that has kind of revolutionized the way we sell a lot of farm equipment in the world of agriculture. And uh, my notes here, uh, Mark, say you're a farmer, an auctioneer, and investor but you're pretty active in knowledge on farm equipment. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are. Well, I uh, come out of high school in the early 80s. That was a challenging time for a lot of people that were living in rural America trying to make it in farming. And my dad was a farmer, and he told my brother and I that we probably had to go do something different to make ends meet. So we kind of got into the auction business. And... Uh, started doing household sales until a gentleman gave us a shot at having his retirement sale and it kind of kicked off from there we got a love for it and um, sold a lot of machinery all across the country for a great many number of years and got into the internet space in the early 2000s uh, broadcasting our open outcry sales in real time over the internet when people were saying what's the internet i don't have anything like that at my place but um as times progressed and uh, Internet became more available, it started getting a lot of traction real fast. And in 2009, we launched the Big Iron online auction brand. Uh, that first sale had 21 items with over 800 people registered to participate. And now we've got uh, over 8,700 items that we'll be selling here in the month of, month of March and the first week of, of April with uh, from over 1023 different sellers so uh, and they're from all across the United States quite a change thanks to the technology when i was growing up on the wisconsin dairy farm auction time was always in the spring maybe a few in the fall but now that's totally changed i would guess well our auctions are every wednesday and they're year round unless that wednesday falls on a holiday 
We have had some two-day sales due to the large volumes of participation, and that's usually in December uh, or in this March period. We've, we'll have 3,000 items, or right at 3,000 items, selling on the last Wednesday here in uh, March. But, um, yeah, technology has changed. Now 62% of all of the bids received on equipment that is selling on our site come from the folks who have downloaded the Big Iron Auction app on their smartphone or their mobile device. So everybody takes it with them, mobile, all over the place. So you can be doing your taxes and bidding on equipment if that's on a Wednesday appointment. Or We've had people sitting in a dentist chair buying machinery while they're having their crowns filled. And give me the uh, address where they find you. BigIron.com, B-I-G-I-R-O-N.com is uh, our website. And again, it's not related or uh, part of the Big Iron show in North Dakota. No, it is not, but we always participate in that show. That's a great event to attend. Uh, So the Big Iron Auction Company attends the Big Iron Farm Show. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So what's the hottest selling item agriculturally these days? Planters. Uh, drills are really, really hot right now. I think a lot of people got caught up last year with weather, and uh, they're thinking they can speed up their uh, planting process by just getting another tractor and a couple extra implements moving through the field. Uh, so planters are really, really popular right now, and uh, grain drills, those are really hot items. And uh, advice for farmers on what they should be putting up for sale on an auction and some of the best practice strategies that uh, they can use to do that. Well, the first thing you need to do is look over your list of equipment. And if you haven't used something in the last two years, uh, sell it and then repurchase something that you can actually use to make your operation more efficient. But once you have that list and you look over that list, uh, don't just make the decision to sell it and want the check in two weeks because a successful sale, uh, whether it's one item or multiple items, is all about the marketing and the exposure that you get. So uh, we have a five-week marketing period. So if you make the decision to ta- today to sell something, we can get it sold in five weeks. But it's very, very important to have that marketing time. And if you, if you allow us more than five weeks, that's even better yet. Uh, so we can get the word out to people that are specifically looking for what you want to, wanting to sell. Uh, 94% of everything sold on Big Iron is sold to an end user, not to a reseller. And that's why we pay close attention to that time period. Okay, I'm a farmer, and I have a farm all tractor to sell because that was my tractor when I was a kid. So take me through the process of getting it listed and sold. How do we do that? Well, it starts with a phone call or go to our website and click on the button where it says sell, sell your equipment. And then our area rep, we have reps all across the United States. They're, they're local, so we support local communities, and the reps come out to visit with you. They'll go over our program, uh, which talks about all the rules and requirements of our no-reserve auction. Everything that's sold on our website sells absolute with no reserves, and we don't charge a buyer's fee. We also sell that item lien-free. So once you uh, agree to use our service, we run the UCC searches, and we verify that uh, that item can be sold to the highest bidder. If you do have a lien on it, and a lot of the equipment out there does, then we work with that lender uh, to come up with the payoff amount or 
or, or have an agreement with them to put their name on the check. But then we'll make sure that your equipment is clean and presentable and staged in an area uh, that is going to benefit you the most uh, when it is sold. And the item, the pictures, the video footage of it running then are uploaded onto our website. Our rep does all of this work. And then you as the owner uh, will start to receive phone calls because we always publish the owner's name and their phone number with every item that's on our site. That's why buyers love it so much. We don't penalize them for bidding with a buyer's fee. There's no buyer's premiums on our website. We publish the owner's name and their phone number. We provide a lot of pictures, a lot of detailed descriptions, and a video. And we have a transparent bid history, so they can look at the bid history to show uh, where the bids are coming from all across the country. The item then is put on our website for bidding for three weeks. And then on the day that the bidding ends, anybody that submits a bid within the last five minutes of the scheduled closing time, it will extend that bid to allow any co-bidders to bid back and forth. So uh, the item sells only after nobody has increased the bid for five full minutes. That's the way our system works. That's the way uh, people really like it. We get calls all the time that they love the platform. They love the transparency. They love the legitimacy. And you then, as the seller, get your check in the mail a couple weeks after that uh, item sells and uh, all is good, all is happy. The buyer comes to your location to pick it up. You don't have to move it anywhere, just have to have it available for people to look at it if they want to come and inspect it. And what happens if I'm the buyer? Not selling, but I'm the buyer. Yeah, the buyer uh, easily, once they become the high-winning bidder, they'll get an invoice emailed to them. They make payment arrangements within a 48-hour period. They get emailed an invoice with a special code on it that will match the code that the seller gets. That way, when they show up, uh, they verify that information and they take possession of that piece of machinery. So we're talking machinery. What about land? What about livestock? Do you get involved in that? We sell land on our website. Uh, We have a real estate division and we sell land all across the the Midwest. People really like the online bidding portion of selling land because uh, sometimes they bid against their neighbor, but because it's online, that anonymity uh, makes it easier for them to bid without having hard feelings. And uh, we are getting into the livestock sales. You'll be watching some performance bulls and some uh, females being sold here in April on the Big Iron website as well. And that process is the same with a lot of information. All the animal EPDs and all that information is published on our website, and everything sells with no reserve. Same thing as the land. The land is sold with no reserve, and we provide all the soil maps, the uh, the aerial information, the Farm Service Agency information. Uh, We provide drone video footage. Uh, We even provide some of the history on the farm as well. So if you're into that stuff, that makes the buying process more enjoyable. And uh, we like to get people comfortable because then it's easier for them to be a participant. And your website again, how do they find you? You go to www.bigiron.com. And one more uh, discussion this morning, because I discovered, talking to you, that uh, you're in St. Edwards, Nebraska, and that led to the fact that you and I have a mutual friend who retired as the executive of uh, Case IH, Jim Irwin, who grew up not too far from you. That is correct. He's a 
he is a, a, a small town Nebraska boy, and he grew up on a farm that's actually four miles away from where I currently live. I'm a farm kid. I still live on the farm. In fact, I get to go out there and run a tractor once in a while back and forth with a planter, and harvest time's always fun and exciting. You know, most of the folks that are big iron reps are farmers or ranchers, so we have our hands directly tied to agriculture. We can talk the talk and walk the walk, and uh, that's why I think that we're so passionate about helping all these folks who are retiring, uh, who have equipment to sell, and who are in the market to buy machinery because we are directly tied and uh, uh, associated with it, working with it every day. And I can't end a conversation with a uh, farmer from Nebraska without asking have you recovered from the terrible video I saw a year ago of the flooding? You know, we have uh, we have recovered. It took us about six weeks to get our main office uh, all cleaned back up. You know, once you get floodwaters in, you got to take the drywall out. You got to redo the carpets and a lot of wiring and such. But you know, we had a lot of good volunteers that came in from all around the area. Uh, it was uh, very humbling, and we're still appreciative of all the people that helped. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts with us this morning. And again, it's Big Iron Auction. And we'll be talking more about that as we move into the selling season a little bit more heavily than at the moment. A visit with uh, Mark Stock, co-founder of Big Iron Auction, here on the Saturday Morning Show. 25 minutes after 5 o'clock, as always, we are grateful to you for joining us here on WGN Radio in Chicago, and particularly on Saturday morning. Max Armstrong standing by with Naomi Bloom of uh, Stuart Peterson, based in West Bend, Wisconsin. They'll be talking about the market, and of course, how can you talk markets now without using the word coronavirus? Don't care if it's equities, the stock market, or it's agriculture, the grain market, the livestock market. Every market report is coronavirus. And uh, last year it was the China-U.S. trade war. And every year it seems to be another issue that comes up to add to the many issues that farmers and ranchers still have with weather and market activities. So we talked, of course, about China for the past year and a half and the trade agreement, and it, uh, I think, made some of us think that maybe uh, we're not going to trade with China anymore. But uh, it's interesting to note, in a late story this week, China's soybean imports in the first two months of 2020 jumped 14% year-on-year. That's according to official data that we received uh, yesterday. And uh, China, the world's top market for soybeans, brought in 13.5 million tons of the oil seed in January and February. That's up from 11.8 million tons a year earlier. Customs said last month it would combine preliminary trade data for January and February instead of releasing data for individual months. Early year data in China is typically distorted by the week-long Lunar New Year holiday. And, of course, this year the coronavirus epidemic has uh, impacted all trading activity with China. 
China brought in 9.5 million tons of the oilseed in December when cargoes from both Brazil and the United States cleared customs and soybean crushers purchased more U.S. soybeans after Beijing issued extra tariff-free quotas for some American cargoes ahead of an initial trade deal that was finalized in January. China has already granted tariff exemptions to some crushers to import U.S. soybeans and measures to contain the coronavirus in China, however, hampered operating rates at crushing plants by disrupting the transport of raw materials and processed products. U.S. soybeans usually dominate the market in the fourth quarter and the early months of each year when exports from the U.S. harvest in the fall begin to kick in. And China, of course, has now promised to buy more U.S. farm goods under the trade deal that Beijing and Washington signed in mid-January. But there is concern whether or not the coronavirus will keep China from fulfilling some of the amounts of trade that we talked about in the agreement. And uh, Senator Chuck Grassley uh, from Iowa said this week that we need to be patient with China because of the unexpected coronavirus that has uh, taken over much of the activity and the trade in China in the new year. So, And about the same time that Chuck Grassley had that to say on this side of the Pacific, uh, officials from the Chinese government said they would fulfill their commitment on the expanded purchases of American farm and manufactured goods, as well as technology. So it'll be interesting to watch that. And the trade in agriculture here in this country continues to watch those import figures from China, particularly in soybeans and in corn and in pork. So Life is never dull, my friends, whether you're on this side of the Pacific or the other side. Life is never dull. We're at the 5.30 mark here on the Saturday Morning Show. Thank you for joining us and being with us here. And there's more to come. Max will talk markets with Naomi Naomi Bloom. And uh, we're going to express some personal thoughts and opinions on Samuelson Says, here on 720 WGN Radio Chicago. Well, this headline a few days ago caught my attention, and it did bring back memories of a time gone by. The headline, U.S. Department of Agriculture invests $900 million in rural electric infrastructure in 16 states. Some interesting history immediately came to mind. Because there was a time when farmers and ranchers had no electricity because there were not enough customers on country lines to justify the cost for the generation and delivery of electricity. But then in the 1930s, under the leadership of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the Rural Electrification Administration, REA, was formed to bring electricity to all farms and ranches in rural America. And it took time. That job was finally finished about two or three decades ago. But now let me share my personal history on this move forward. I am often asked by young people today, 
What is the biggest change in technology that you have experienced and seen in your lifetime? Well, I not only can give them my answer, I can give them the date and the year it happened. April 11, 1947. It was on that date the Vernon Rural Electric Co-op hooked up the Samuelson Farm in western Wisconsin to the electric line coming across the hills and valleys to change life on our farm. And my, how life changed. We bought a refrigerator. My mom bought an electric iron. I would hit a switch at the bottom of the stairs and there was instant light in my upstairs bedroom. I no longer did my studying by an Aladdin lamp. No longer carried a kerosene lantern across the barnyard into the barn because we had an electric yard light. Oh, and we no longer milk cows by hand. We bought a milking machine, and I could go on and on talking about how life changed with the coming of electricity. So that's why I was pleased to see this continued support from the allocation of funds from USDA to repair and modernize the infrastructure to continue to provide electricity to farms and ranches. When it comes to providing technology for rural America and my city grandkids, well, we can't get along without being electrified. My thoughts on Samuelson Says, a presentation of the Nexstar Media Group. Ah, some real memories there. And if you've gone through that addition of electricity to your farm or ranch, I'm sure you've had similar experiences. But to me, the biggest excitement was standing at the bottom of the stairs, flicking a switch And there was light in my upstairs bedroom. My, oh, my. And later on, of course, flying Air Orion as much as we do around the Midwest at night, uh, you can easily see where the farmsteads are located because there are all-night electric light security yard lights to be seen from the skies as we fly over rural America. Quite a change, and that's why that's my biggest technology advancement in my lifetime, electricity. Well, Max Armstrong is standing by, and uh, he has a guest that we enjoy bringing into the studio from time to time, so we'll do that when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. It has been a while. It's been too long since Naomi Bloom has been in our studio. We welcome her back from Total Farm Marketing with Stuart Peterson. Did I get that right? It's close. It's perfect, Max. It's perfect. (laughs) Well, here we are getting close to spring. We're just days away. And the weather of the past few days, without uh, snow blowing and without blizzard conditions right over the heartland, generally speaking, Got some people thinking about the fact we might not be too many days away from planting. Everybody's certainly engaged in wanting to get it done quickly this year, if they possibly can, in a window of opportunity, correct? Oh, for sure. After last year, everyone is really, I think, chopping at the bit to try to get anything done as soon as they can. So this uh, nice window of warmth, I think, is encouraging people. And then we'll see. You know, Some weather forecasts are still calling for 
rainy and wet spring. Some are trying to say, no, maybe it won't be that way. So um, I think as soon as there's opportunity, those planters are definitely get rolling because I don't think producers want to deal with another repeat of 2019 for this spring. Growers have had plenty to do in recent days. We saw many of them attending meetings, of course, uh, where we saw you at Commodity Classic. Uh, Many have been out there checking field tiles, doing some repair work on field tiles. Several have been busy checking their bins and trying to uh, perhaps move out of condition corn. That really is a challenge this year, isn't it? That's a very common theme in conversations that we're having with clients. I would say one out of five clients is either legitimately struggling with out of condition corn or corn that's about to go out of condition. So it is a very real factor. They're trying to move that product sooner than later because they're really not confident that it can stay in condition Um, until a summer rally. So um, I'm very curious to watch how the basis will be moving and fluctuating in the coming two to three weeks, because there is going to be, I I do feel, some grain coming to market. Part of that is um, road conditions. Part of it is that people have time now before planting. And part of it is that they just need to get that um, out-of-condition crop out of the bin. And we'll see if basis can stay strong and continue as this new grain comes onto the marketplace, or does basin soften up a little bit. So um, that's what I'm watching first and foremost continues to be basis which right now continues to be stronger than normal across the Midwest. Sometimes in the spring we see basis gyrations due to flooding along the waterways, and we're not seeing, right at the moment, knock on wood, that uh, spring flooding that many had feared, are we? Yeah. I mean, there was there was quite a bit of concern about it just a few weeks ago. Right, that was one of the thoughts that would be there, but I think with this gradual kind of warm-up that we're having, and um, if you're into the old wives' tales, you know, we have the birds like robins and the um, red-winged blackbirds are back in Wisconsin, which is three weeks too soon. So there's signs of spring, and hopefully we don't have that disastrous flooding again. Um it would just be, I think, devastating emotionally and mentally to too much of the farm community to have another repeat of that. With the gyrations in the equity markets, of course, that hasn't gone unnoticed by uh, folks in the commodity business. Uh, they've been uh, responding up and down. That really hasn't been enough to... Uh, offer opportunity to growers, has it? It hasn't done too much as far as the the corn and soybean market, as far as um, price movement. Of course, we had a little bit of a pullback uh, last week while we were all at Commodity Classic, but we had a recovery bounce early this week. The biggest thing to keep in mind is that seasonally, a lot of times, corn and soybean prices just drift a little bit lower throughout the month of March. But what market has been affected by the coronavirus scares is the livestock sector, uh, specifically cattle that had a tremendous drop lower on fears that consumers maybe wouldn't be going out to eat or businesses having to cut back on travel. So therefore, there wouldn't be as many steak dinners out there. Um, But then I wonder, hey, it's going to be a nice weekend. Maybe we're going to see some steaks being grilled around the Midwest that way. Um, but the the cattle market is the one that's being, I think, mostly affected by the coronavirus fears. Coronavirus. We really don't have any basis for comparison, do we? I mean, uh, people harken back to the SARS episode, but really it's nothing quite like this. No, because obviously, you know, but with SARS, that was a decade ago and the Chinese economy is much different than it was a decade ago. The whole world economy is different than it was a decade We're ago. much more intertwined. Absolutely. So this is new territory for all of us. Looking back at SARS, it felt like um, the market did its uh, gyrations in terms of the stock markets for about two or three months and then kind of simmered down. 
Um, but the SARS wasn't over and done with until summer when, you know, it was finally able to be done transmitting through people. So coronavirus, of course, now starting to pop up a little bit more in the United States. We're hearing things about it. It'll be very interesting to see if there's any quarantine efforts within our country over the next two to three to four weeks. Um, but I think if we can get through that, we'll be in the clear and then life will start resuming like normal as we know it. So for all of the talk about a slowdown in the growth of the Chinese economy and the possibility they may not fulfill their promised buying under the phase one trade agreement that we have with China, is there the possibility that they may, in fact, come to the United States uh, to buy and, and especially buy what they traditionally did, soybeans, after they finish up with buying from Brazil? Yeah, well, I think there's a few anecdotes of um, friendliness coming along the way in terms of Chinese buying. They've been big buyers of sorghum the past two weeks. Um, my clients in Kansas have said that sorghum basis was at zero, now is positive 65. So there is that demand there. We are hearing that there's a potential vaccine for the African swine fever. Now, if that is true and China is able to have their hands on that vaccine, well, now they're back in business as far as ramping up their production of pork. In the meantime, they're going to still need to buy from us, but then there's going to be this new demand of grain because they need to feed the pork and, and that's going to be raised over that area. Um, along with these lower prices, it's on sale. China is always wanting to buy on a discount. So now if we have a seasonal sell-off throughout the month of March, I have a strong suspicion that they're going to come in and buy as much as they can on sale between energies, between cattle prices being low, between the dairy prices dropping, hog prices being lower, and of course the grains. It's an opportunistic time. And Sonny Perdue even said recently he thinks that China's going to come in and buy beans at the end of spring to early summer, which, hey, seasonally, that's usually when beans are pretty cheap around here at the, at the middle part of May. And before we get a summer rally. He made the comment in uh, Capitol Hill testimony, as I recall, just the yes, other day. Uh, thank you. So I thought that was kind of interesting that he staked out a position on mm -hmm. that. Yeah. I've heard some analysts say they believe the Chinese might, in fact, be uh, coming into buy to try to run up the price a little bit, it's, uh, which would be uncharacteristic for them because they like to depress the price and buy. But uh, the rationale that this analyst offered was that they would then be able to quickly fulfill their promises to buy uh, that grain from the United States. States. And Interesting perspective. They promised to buy $40 billion somehow. Yeah, and that's not even priced into the marketplace yet. If they actually show up and buy what they said they're going to buy, it is not priced in the marketplace yet. So um, that along with a strong basis, you know, I'm, I'm watching all of that because if you are a producer who have recently made cash sales for whatever reason, you are going to want to reown it when we finally see a market low. We haven't seen it yet, and, and it may take until the middle of May, but when we see that bottoming signal, I think you're definitely going to want to be reowning the crop that you've recently sold and then partake of the rally this summer and make sure you're unloading old crop sales and start focusing on the new crop sales. Um, but in the meantime, it just is going to probably be more of a quiet marketplace. How do farmers feel? You and I visit with a lot of growers, and we did at Commodity Classic. I tend to maintain that uh, those maybe aren't always your typical producers. A lot of folks who attend meetings, such as Commodity Classic, are uh, very sharp operators. They uh, run a very uh, close business. They are on top of their marketing, so they might be a, a little more business-oriented than others and might be a little more upbeat. Uh, and, and, of course, the Purdue survey, the Purdue CME monthly survey, which 
gyrates all over the place. The peaks and troughs of that weekly or the monthly survey are uh, rather striking, it seems. How much the farmer sentiment, according to that survey, swings back and forth. But what's your feeling about how growers uh, are feeling about their situation right now? Um, it's finally changing. So in January and February, um, many producers were down in the dumps. You could just see the emotional terror and the the mental anguish that they were still going through from the late harvest, you know, people who were still dealing with harvesting crops into January and all of that. And so finally, I think just in the last two weeks, and I did notice it at Commodity Classic, there was a newfound optimism. There was a newfound, okay, we're going to tackle 2020. We're going to make this be our year. And it was more of a resilience that I hadn't seen in a long time, and it was refreshing. It was so refreshing. Yeah, and you know, there's a lot of people who point out that producers are still struggling with the lower prices, and so we do need to have um, a great summer rally of some sort, and then we need to really encourage producers to be using that as an opportunity to be making those sales, because that is your time that you can make those profitable sales. Your astute observations are always appreciated. Good to see you. Thank you. Thanks, Max. Naomi Bloom, Total Farm Marketing from Stuart Peterson. It's eight minutes before six o'clock news time, and the temperature on the thermometer outside my studio in Huntley, Illinois, says 22 degrees at the moment. Well, there are many activities that take place this time of the year, every year, and I want to mention one that that does happen every year in addition to the arrival of the first robin and the uh, arrival of spring and uh, National Agriculture Day and the Final Four and all that. Every year about this time, farmers in Argentina go on strike. And it's happened and will happen again this year. All four major Argentine farmers groups will join a four-day crop sales strike starting next week. They're doing it to protest uh, a recent increase in soy export taxes. That's according to a source with one of the groups. And for some reason or another, we do get farmer strikes at this time of the year in Argentina. The uh, meeting schedule for farmers here in North America beginning to slow down as the crop season comes on, but uh, we've had a lot of those meetings, the cattlemen, and uh, last week we had, or I should say this week really, we had the pork producers, the National Pork Producers Council coming together in Kansas City, Missouri, and they elected new officers and members to the board of directors at that uh, forum in Kansas City, and I want to send out congratulations to uh, the new president of the National Pork Producers Council, Howard Roth. He's a hog farmer from Wazika, Wisconsin. He was elected president of the National Pork Producers Council. He's a fifth-generation farmer. He owns and operates Roth feeder pigs, in addition to serving on the NPPC board for the past eight years. He previously sat on the Wisconsin Pork Association Board of Directors and currently serves as chairman of the association's Swine Health Committee. And Roth takes over from David Herring, a hog farmer from Lillington, North Carolina. 
who now becomes the National Pork Producers Council immediate past president and chairman of the council's trade and his nominating committee. So uh, congratulations to the new officers and the board members of the National Pork Producers Council. What did they talk about at their annual meeting? Well, of course, they talked about the challenge of livestock disease, and they welcomed strengthening efforts to prevent African swine fever. That's the disease that kills pigs but doesn't impact uh, human beings. But it's deadly to pigs in China. It's wiped out about uh, 40% of the total pig crop. And uh, the other thing they talked about, advocating for accurate and truthful labeling of plant-based and cell-cultured products while supporting enforcement of fair labeling by the Food and Drug Administration and USDA. The Council supports consumer choice and competitive markets, plant-based and cell-cultured products designed to mimic real meat, must face the same stringent regulatory requirements as livestock agriculture, including truthful labeling standards. I've been preaching that, I think, for years where we're getting the mislabeling. And my wife, incidentally, when she goes into a supermarket in our community and she finds fake meat, laboratory meat, whatever you want to call it, plant-based, but when she sees it in the meat counter right next to real hamburger, she'll still call out the meat market manager and say, don't you think that plant-based should be in the produce department and not here in the real meat department? And then one other thing I do want to mention this time of the year, because it happened at the National Pork Producers Council, They awarded scholarships to 10 college students who intend to pursue careers in the pork industry. And the 2020 winners of the $2,500 scholarships are the following. They're from all over the Midwest. There's Dana Edelman, South Dakota State University, Grace Greiner, Iowa State, Molly Kroger, South Dakota State, Nolan Lines, Iowa State, Ethan Stass, Pennsylvania State, Logan Tesh, South Dakota State, Zanna Tyndall, North Carolina State University, Caitlin Wildman of Iowa State University, and Drew Wiley, Kansas State University, Isaac Wiley from Iowa State University, all this week received $2,500 scholarships from the National Pork Producers Council. I keep telling you, Mom and Dad, as you get over the sticker shock of the cost of a college education, I keep telling you there are scholarships out there, but they don't come looking for you. You have to go looking for them. And I encourage you because there are organizations like the pork producers. There are corporations serving the agricultural community. There are individuals. Uh, Gloria and I have a scholarship award at the University of Illinois, for example. And the scholarships are there, but you've got to go looking for them because they're not going to come looking for you. Well, let's wrap up where we ended up this week in livestock and grain trade at the Chicago Board of Trade and also the uh, Chicago Mercantile Exchange, taking a look 
first of all, at the uh, livestock trade at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. It uh, ended the week with cattle futures hitting new contract lows yesterday, extending a decline that was fueled by fears of, you got it, corona virus disease certainly impacting the uh, marketplace in livestock and uh, well equities and grains and everything else and uh, the grain market uh, also pretty much a red screen yesterday as we ended the marketing day the uh, activities on the farm calendar next week uh, not too many But keep in mind, before you go to sleep tonight, you spring forward, move the clock one hour ahead, unless you live in Arizona or in Hawaii or even in some counties in Indiana. So move the clock ahead one hour before you go to sleep tonight. That's our time here on the Saturday Morning Show. Thanks, as always, to you for listening. Thanks to Bob Ferguson for doing the engineering work. And thank you for joining us on the Saturday Morning Show. Orion Samuelson keeps you connected to the world of business and agriculture on WGN. Hear his reports weekday mornings on the Steve Cochran Show and during the noon hour on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Plus, catch Orion and Max on Saturday mornings at 5 a.m. only on Chicago's WGN Radio 720.